there is a misperception about what ESG is as a management concept, as a governance concept, as an investment concept in business. And ESG, at least in my mind, was never meant that it will save the world. That was George Seraphim, the Charles M. Williams Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, who I'm talking to on this month's Fix the Future show, the podcast where we explore ideas about how investors can do good in the world while making good money. And I'm Algie Hall, the investment editor of CityWire Fix the Future. Over the last decade, George has been a pioneer in developing the common sense ideas that underpin ESG. He's also been involved with much of the most influential research in the field and continues to push the subject forward, including through his work on impact-weighted accounts, which we'll hear more about later. And he's also the author of the recently released book, Purpose and Profit, How Business Can Lift Up the World. And it's a book I can highly recommend. Hello, George. Hello. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you here. And um, uh, I've, I've been I've been a huge fan of your work for um, many years. And um, thank you. Really? I would, yeah. And um, well, thank you, I should say. <laughs> um, I, I thought I thought a good place to start was just um, with your um, interest in transparency and where that came from, because really, um. In, in terms of your work, it, it, it seems to be a common theme which runs through everything, really, this this ability just to provide transparency on what's actually going on in companies. Yes. And, uh, and for me, that uh, idea is an extremely important one. And I, I, I like to take uh, people back on the journey that we have traveled over the last hundred years. So if you think about it, the, the world that we have created, the economic system that we have created and the society that we have created, a hundred years ago, we didn't even have some basic financial reporting and control systems in markets. So if you wanted to get information about the profitability, the sales of a company and so forth, you would be getting very little information, if any information. So things that we take for granted right now were just not there a uh, hundred years ago and a few decades ago in most markets actually around the world. And over time, what we decided as a society is that in order to have accountability over the management of financial resources inside that organization, it would be a good idea to create transparency and to have consistent, comparable accounting standards and then all the mechanisms around the production of accounting numbers, such as, for example, auditing of those, such as, for example, analysis of those and so forth, in order to create an accountability structure that then what are the effects of that? Well, it can lead to better resource allocation decisions and management of those resources. Now, if you take that paradigm and apply it to what is happening right now in terms of sustainability, you can ask the question, what are those resources that then we're interested in to understand the efficient and effective management of those. And I think the world has changed. And now more and more of the competitiveness of organizations depend on the management of human capital, intellectual capital, social capital, natural capital, and so forth. So I think we're asking the same basic question, which is 
how can we create an accountability structure and a governance structure around the proper management of those resources? And what I always say is that without transparency, you're not going to get there. It's not a sufficient mechanism, but it's a necessary mechanism for us to be able to get to that accountability structure. Yes, yeah, so it, it, the kind of um, first step on the journey, but vital to get on that journey. And Vital. I mean, also because I mean, you've obviously been. Well, I mean, I say I'm going to say you've been at this a long time, but actually, it's probably only just over a decade. You've um, yes. really been devoting yourself to this, and um, in in terms of kind of getting that message across and getting people to understand that idea that there's there are things which just aren't being measured, which are really important to investment, and um, yes. ESG can do that, or non-financial metrics can do that, or play a role in it. Um, just how, how has that evolved from, um, you know, not being listened to early on to kind of suddenly the, um, the, the huge interest that we saw kind of from around um, 2019, I guess. That's what it felt like to me. I think there is a very interesting reframing perspective that I think uh, has happened and it's happening and will continue happening. So I think if you if you say, and I have been saying that for a very long time, which is, if you actually say to a lot of people, should you care about ESG issues and um, sustainability issues and so forth, some people might say yes, some people might say no, because they have their own interpretation mm-hmm. of what that means. So I think you need to make it to people very, very specific. And I will give you a very simple example of that. Like, how much money firms are spending on actually hiring, retaining, and growing human capital inside the organizations. And then when you ask that question and you say, how much actually do we know about how effective that process actually is other than getting one financial statement item in the income statement, Mm -hmm. which says how much money you have spent on this. But then when you look at it, you say, well, actually, there are organizations, when you're actually observing what's happening inside organizations, there are organizations that are spending an enormous amount of resources to actually screen and hire the, the right type of people inside the organizations, and they spend an enormous amount of resources that are spending to actually grow people internally and promote people internally inside the organization. Now, there are other organizations that are following a very different model and a very different strategy, which is they primarily hire externally, especially for more senior positions. And as a result, they are much less likely to internally promote people. Now, these are two different models. This is a fundamental aspect of what I would say ESG under the S, which is the development of Mm -hmm. human capital inside the organizations. But, and it has tremendous implications we're finding in our research in terms of the future financial performance of organizations, because it relates to the ability to be productive inside organizations, to be innovative inside organizations, and the cost structure of inside organizations. But when you put it in this context, where you say, actually, how do you actually create value? How do you drive performance? How do you get the necessary talent inside the organization? And how the organizations have different models that have fundamental implications for how much you are paying for the talent. It has fundamental implications for employee turnover, for ability to create a strong culture and alignment inside organizations and drive productivity and innovation. 
that is actually something super important. Now, you can actually ask the question, do we have the data to do this analysis? Again, the answer goes back and says, no, most organizations actually don't provide. So, for example, what we have been doing, we have been using big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence to construct very large data sets that allows us to understand the internal promotion versus external hiring patterns across thousands of organizations. Now, I can apply the same exact topic to, for example, decarbonization. Mm -hmm. Do you actually know, apart from the high-level statement of two organizations saying, we will get to net zero, okay, that is a good intention and a very aspirational intention, but do you have actually good information about how effective and productive those organizations are at actually navigating that journey. How much is coming from energy efficiency? How much is coming from energy substitution? How much is coming from circularity? And how much all of those things are costing and which ones are actually leading to product innovation that might lead to revenue growth by greening your products, for example, and green product innovation? And the answer, I guess, is that we have very little information about this. So we are in the early stages of understanding those things. But I think when you're actually reframing them around how they're actually affecting risk and growth inside organizations and future revenues and costs inside organizations, which goes to the idea of how those issues are becoming financially material and how those issues are likely to have different strategic relevance across different in industries, geographic context and firm specific strategies, then people are actually starting to develop an analytical model yeah. of how those issues are actually relevant for the competitiveness organizations. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, yeah, I mean, there's just so much we don't see from, um, from, from, from the accounts, which, um, and, and the understand, well, investors understanding of capital seems to be developing massively with this, um, realization that so much is intangible um and so and and also which goes hand in hand with the fact that tangible assets just don't sit on um the balance well i don't have the same um relevance anymore i guess um i i, I suppose just in in terms of um talking about mater materiality because one of i think one uh, it's fair to describe it as a kind of landmark piece of research which um you um you were responsible for with two colleagues looked at that issue um, in, I think, 2016 on the materiality of ESG and just um, that question of, um, you know, if people are doing the stuff that matters, does it matter to their share price and does it matter to their performance in the business? And I mean, from the sound of what you're saying, you're doing now, this is, I mean, that idea seems to be in a real genesis in terms of um, your, your work. Yeah, and this is an important idea for several reasons, right? So the first one is that organizations cannot do everything, right? I always like to say that because it's it's that much that you can actually do inside organizations. You cannot spread your organization very thin, trying to actually satisfy everybody. So what we say is that the classic old return on management is a very, very important idea, which is you really need to actually allocate management attention to the most critical issues that the organization is facing. So, for example, if you are a mining firm, you really need to pay attention on 
health and safety inside the minds and community relations around the minds that are fundamentally giving you uh, the ability and the license to operate. So as a result, for example, if you're running a gold mine, let's say waste issues that are huge actually around mines are also very, very critical. And if you are actually running a pharmaceutical firm, for example, access to health and access to innovation and how you are thinking about access issues are becoming very, very important. And if you are running basically very high carbon emitting uh, industrial and manufacturing processes and so forth, are those issues are becoming very, very important, right? With increasing basically carbon regulation, uh, awareness in society, customers demanding lower carbon products to satisfy their own aspirations to lower their carbon footprint and so forth. So there is actually a systematic process through which you can go and say, hey, what is it really that is likely to matter here and why, right? And I think that is also an important question. Is it that regulations are changing, right? And the environment as a result is changing. For example, you can look at it and you can say, okay, I'm running um, uh, or I'm investing in a steel or cement manufacturer. And now there might be an EU carbon border adjustment mechanism. What are the implications for that because of that change in regulation? Or you might have actually export, for example, to the United States, and now you have the Inflation Reduction Act for uh, battery manufacturing or for ingredients that go into batteries. Well, obviously, that is actually changing the competitiveness of your product. So regulatory changes is one of them. The other one is legal changes. That might be happening. Increasing litigation, for example, in the context of uh, climate change and carbon. Uh, that is another mechanism. Of course, changes in the competitive environment and new entrants that might be competing in the industry, right? So if you are actually, for example, uh, Volkswagen or if you are General Motors and now you're observing you're competing in China with BYD and NIO and you're competing in uh, globally with Tesla and so forth, that has actually changed the competitive landscape for you. And of course, changes in buyer's requirements, right? So if you're actually a supplier in large uh, consumer goods companies or in large retailers, such as Walmart or Tesco and Sainsbury and so forth, well, actually, you need to comply with your buyer's requirements. So that is actually becoming a a core competitive issue. So it goes back to really trying to understand how the world around us is changing because of changes in regulatory regulatory mechanisms in terms of product markets, labor markets, capital markets, and so forth. And then tighten that back and saying, how is the organization likely to, to respond? And critically, from that perspective, how the organization can develop new processes in order to be able to innovate. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that is also an important point, because many times we tend to view the world in a static way and we say, oh, like I will try to do that. But it's so expensive. Right. Um, And I like to say that the best organizations view the world in a dynamic perspective, meaning that the what is costly today might not be costly tomorrow. Right. And you're observing that, for example, in many markets around the world. Right. So, for example, we have brought the cost of batteries 
very, very significantly down, right? So everybody that 10 years ago would have said, look, I wish I could develop, for example, electromobility, but the batteries are just so high. And then you had different organizations that had a very different attitude to that. They saw that actually as an opportunity. And instead of saying the battery cost is so high, I just can't develop that, they said something very different, which was actually because the battery cost is high, I will bring it down. And because I can bring it down, I will win. There's a there's a story which I think you have right at um, the front of your uh, your book, Profit and Purpose, actually, which is um, about, I think it's Daimler, an executive from Daimler, um, kind of essentially mocking... Um, Tesla and I thought I, I thought that story um captured so well kind of you know some of the things you were touching on there because one it's that static thinking which um I, th- I think is always you know is in, it also is outsiders as investors that that's one of the things investors fight against because things are as they are until they're not but also yes. um it, it kind of struck me as um uh but, kind of telling a story about the way we understand risk and idiosyncratic risk, which is a lot of what you're talking about. It's just very hard to um, actually imagine a world um, where, you know, certain changes have happened. Yes. It's, you know, it's, um, it's human nature, I would call it, right? So it's almost like it's hard for us to imagine things before they happen. And then once they happen, we cannot imagine a world that those didn't exist, right? <laughs> if you think about it, it's this kind of like uh, conundrum that we face as humans uh, where actually if I would tell you that we would have a world where we wouldn't even have basic financial information mm-hmm. for organizations around the world, you would say, George, this is impossible. This just cannot happen. And I can tell you that before... For example, the Securities Exchange Act in 1933 and 1934 and so forth, people actually pushed back against that idea that we would have accounting standards and financial reporting. And they said, this is never going to happen because every organization is very unique. You cannot do that and, and, and so forth. So it's this, it's this weird thing that we cannot imagine the world before we experience it in most cases. But once we experience it, we cannot imagine the world without it, right? And the same thing, a classic example of that is also the the iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. And before the iPhone came actually so much in the telecommunication space, so much thinking was about how you will just be putting basically a phone right next to your ear. And once they came up with this giant screen on, on the phone, uh, people were like confused. They were like, why would I want the giant screen to be next to my ear? And you know, obviously uh, the innovators at Apple said, you're actually missing the point. <laughs> yeah, then we all got the point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um. I mean, I, I suppose um, in, in terms of what you're saying, I was just wondering how much, because this this year is obviously there's been a lot of um, backlash, if that's um, the right way to describe it, against um, ESG as an idea. And I was wondering if um, how, how you feel, how much of that is kind of to do with people not really, you know, understanding the scope of it and, um, and, and also just seeing things as they are at the moment where, you know, the oil price has gone up a lot and a lot of those stocks have performed very well. 
and suddenly you know that's smart and ESG's um dumb and and also maybe you know the the perception is that ESG has it's be or it's been marketed as having a moral high ground which perhaps is um not quite how you know how how it should be thought of in terms of it's beyond risk and opportunity yes um it's it's a really good question i think it it deserves almost a decomposition to the, the to the various themes and the reason why i'm saying that because there are different layers here that uh, need to be analyzed the first one is that um some sometimes it's because there is a misperception about what ESG is as a management concept, as a governance concept, as an investment concept in business. And ESG, at least in my mind, was never meant that it will save the world. There are some several people that kind of like think that, oh, you know, this is a mechanism or it has been uh, advertised as a mechanism uh, that it will save the world, that it will solve basically poverty and inequality and climate change and water scarcity and so forth. And it cannot do that, right? It wasn't meant to do that. It is, it is a framework through which organizations are trying to measure, analyze, drive performance, and communicate key performance indicators that are actually relevant for them. Why? Again, because of going back to what we're saying about how the world is changing. Right. And that's it. So I think there is sometimes a, a misalignment mm-hmm. of expectations compared to the people that see it as a save the world type of tool, which is not what this is. I think the second one is has to do with the fact that because ESG has become more important in how organizations are being managed and governed, it it has started mm. having more real implications. It starts to have more teeth. And um, in a couple of years ago, I we published a paper where we looked at the stock market reaction to the passage of the non-financial reporting directive in the EU. And one of the things that we found was this very interesting result that when the regulation part in the announcement of the regulation, in general, the stock prices of companies that tended to have both good disclosure and good underlying performance on key performance indicators on ESG issues, um, in general, they show a small stock price increase in short term. And the organization that had poor disclosure and relatively poor expectations of bad performance on those key performance indicators, they show their stock prices actually a negative stock stock price reaction on those. And the reason why I'm mentioning that is because for me, that paper is a perfect illustration of the point is that not every organization will win from this as ESG is becoming more important. There are going to be some organizations that will experience an increase in their competitiveness and some organizations that will experience a decrease in their competitiveness. And you would expect that naturally, as these issues are becoming more important, the organizations that will see that as the threat to their identity, to their competitiveness and so forth, they will push back. So there is a natural pushback that is happening 
because of the underlying competitiveness that is, that is happening there. And I think the third reason why it is, it is normal to expect that is because um, basically mm-hmm. sometimes it's mis, misapplied um, as, a, as a concept, right? What it is. And as a result, because there are, you can say, bad or suboptimal applications of it, people are experiencing not the intended outcomes that they had expected, either in terms of the impact that it might be generating or because it actually doesn't create value, it doesn't reduce risk, it doesn't open up new opportunities for innovation and so forth. So people are looking back and they say, oh, as a result, it didn't deliver on its promise, right? And I always like to say that because there is a big difference mm-hmm. and a big distinction between strategy development versus strategy implementation. And I always say that, right? Like every organization now that I know of has an ESG plan. But that doesn't mean that one, the plan is a good plan or two, that the plan is going to be implemented the right way. And I think it's in that step of implementation where you observe many organizations actually failing. They cannot get the, the, the type of cultural transformation that is needed to really drive performance. They cannot get the incentives to be aligned. They cannot credibly communicate what they are doing. And as a result, all kinds of bad yeah. outcomes are happening, which is happening also in any strategy that they're trying to implement, right? Not all mergers and acquisitions work. A lot of R&D that organizations is doing is failing. A lot of capital expenditures are going to zero. Like There are a lot of things that are successes and a lot of things that are failures. And I think when you're decomposing ESG to the types of things that you're drive, trying to drive, basically decarbonization versus uh, human capital related issues versus product safety related issues versus supply chain related issues, you would naturally expect to see some successes, but also some failures. And really, that's what I'm trying to emphasize in the book as well. That is not all, all good and great. It's actually a lot, especially for organizations that are trying to do ambitious things with their products and services. There is a lot of failure and a lot of experimentation as well. Yeah, no, and I mean, you know, it's, you, you make in, in, in your book, you make that, that point. You really kind of drive that home that this isn't a magic wand. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd like to come back to that, actually, but also I just in, in terms of um, when you were talking about competitiveness, because one, one of the things which um, I, I, you know, I, I kind of I, I love numbers. I've just got a you know, natural affinity for, you know, anything, anything you can quantify, I kind of, um, you know, I I can tell from, yeah, from, from, from your work, obviously. Because yeah, no, it's it's impact weighted accounts, you know, uh, that I want that I wanted to talk about. Because um, I mean, you talked about you know the uh, underlying competitiveness of businesses seen through this prism of what are the real risks and real rewards, and um, the impact weighted accounts um, tried to put um, the extra the external benefits companies have, and also the kind of free ride the external costs that they um in, you know that that they enjoy. Um, back onto the um, back into the accounts. So we we started this project about three years ago, and we incubated it as a research project here at Harvard Business School in collaboration with many many actually uh, external partners because we were trying to understand 
how we, we can actually think about a holistic performance measurement and evaluation system inside organizations that doesn't only reflect the, the right now, the, the financial uh, performance of the organization in terms of the profit that it generated based on a transaction-based system of uh, double entry bookkeeping of resources going in and going out inside the organization and so forth, but actually reflecting and asking the question that if the both the positive but also the negative impacts that organizations are having, if they were quantified and they were valued, what would that performance of the organization look like? And for me, that journey of measuring impact and valuing impact that then can be reflected in, in, in pounds and in dollars and in yen and in euros and so forth is, is a fascinating uh, journey. And for me, it has revealed several key insights. The first one is how different, actually, your evaluation system might look like when you're measuring inputs versus when you're measuring outcomes. And because in the impact-weighted account system, we're actually concentrating on measuring outcomes, meaning not the intentions and the targets and the efforts that you're pursuing, but what are the actual impacts and outcomes that you're achieving, we're getting at a very, very different um, assessment of which organizations are leading and which organizations are lagging. And because in the ESG space, we have been measuring to a large extent, not only, but to a large extent, what I would call inputs, meaning policies and principles and disclosures and targets and investments that we make and so forth, and much less the outcomes and the impacts that we're achieving, then you actually find that sometimes what we celebrate as leaders might not be actually leaders in terms of outcomes. And some other organizations that are really actually um, delivering much better impacts and much better outcomes, they wouldn't necessarily be the ones that you would find them being the most highly ranked in, in ESG uh, evaluation systems. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that is a very, very important distinction. The second one is that I think for me, uh, sitting here at Harvard Business School, I have always been trying to think about ways that you can actually engage with business managers in a way that, and leaders in, in business, in a way that they, they can associate with that and they can actually start um, getting their arms around some of those issues, right? And always a challenge has been that if you tell a leader, hey, you know, like, you're consuming 300,000 cubic meters of water, right? Or yeah. you're having basically 0 0.002 like uh, carbon intensity or like 100 times of that. Or uh, if you say loss time injury rate of 0 0.005 and all of those things, it's it just, it just hard to grapple with, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so the question is, how can we actually translate things in a way that it is easier to actually embed in business planning? Because if you want people to actually make improvements in a real way, uh, you need to actually translate and create, a, a, I would say, a management system that allows for people to understand what are the consequences of action and what are the consequences of inaction. And... As a result, for us, being able to say, um, what, 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 what would mean if you had 
a hundred dollars or a fifty dollar carbon tax or carbon border adjustment mechanism in your business and how much of of that would be your profit right and how might your profit look like in a carbon adjusted earnings per share system or in a safety adjusted carbon per share system or if you're a consumer's good company in a health and well-being adjusted earnings per share system and that actually translates very very interesting insights right when you actually look at some organizations and you say wow like 25% of your ebitda might be like wiped out yeah. by this but there are other organizations that are having tremendous positive impacts actually right and one of the things that that also illustrated that whole analysis was how big is the difference between the strategies that different organizations are having? For example, when we analyzed consumer goods companies and we said, okay, if we take the six basic ingredients that are affecting human life, basically from a health perspective, when you're consuming those products, right? Such as, for example, uh, fat that you might be consuming, but also whole grains and, and, and so forth. There is a tremendous difference, actually, across consumer good companies in terms of how much sugar they're selling versus how much whole grains that they're selling. And those are having vastly different consequences on people in terms of, uh, in terms of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and obesity and so forth. So actually, you're, when you're asking that question and you're saying, well, actually, again, going back and saying, how is that important to me? Well, if consumer preferences are changing, like how the different organizations might be coping with this. If regulations might change, where they're actually forcing you to make those impacts more visible on your product label. Or if you might have a soda tax, for example, as it has been introduced in multiple jurisdictions around the world and so forth. How is that going to actually affect you? So so for us, that, that whole journey has illustrated the the value of measuring outcomes, the value of translating those outcomes into something that can be compared with existing financial measures that managers understand. And then the idea that it really actually illustrates the fact that within industries, there are very significant differences in the strategies that different organizations have adopted. And also, in terms of, um, I mean, talking about kind of, you know, consequences and the, you know, the measures like the adjusted, the EPS and um, things like that, how how much of that is um, something that um, an investor could use as a kind of real basis for investing? And or is it more just to, you know, show actually what these companies are doing and um, less, of a, less of a practical tool? I expect, this is my expectation, that actually five to 10 years from now, this is what actually investors interested in applying some type of ESG analysis are going to be doing. They're actually going to be using a research and data infrastructure that looks into outcomes, that looks into the value of outcomes, and then is actually modeling the internalization process of those outcomes into basically growth, risk, and future revenues and, and costs. Because it just, it is a more, I would say, 
uh, robust and systematic process and scientific process of actually looking at what the actual outcomes are and asking what is actually really important and what is less important uh, from mm-hmm. the perspective of what's the value of those outcomes. So I expect that this will happen moving forward. The reason why I'm giving a time frame is because it is a very challenging process. Yes. It is not easy. And there are elements of that analysis that are easier to be done, such as, for example, in our environmental impact pillar. Um, I would say that is easier to be done. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but it's much easier to be done relative to, for example, assessing product level impacts, which is like the impacts that you're having on the actual customer and the, and the consumer and so forth. And the reason for that is because those product impacts tend to be highly idiosyncratic. Yeah. And that's why in the impact way that counts as well, we worked on a very industry specific uh, pillar because you can ask the question, you can say, how is a credit card, for example, affecting the consumers? Well, it's fundamentally different than a car or a box of cereals, right? As you can imagine. So these are very, very different dimensions that you're evaluating and you're constructing impact pathways and evaluation of those relative to something that is broadly, I would say, standardizable and applicable, such as, for example, the measurement of nitrous oxide and sulfur oxide and water scarcity and carbon emissions and so forth, that, of course, will differ dramatically across industries in terms of the magnitude But the measurement of that KPI is exactly the same measurement of the KPI. And then the valuation of it depends on the parameters that that you might use. I suppose I I kind of think of this and, you know, it sounds slightly kind of like ESG 2.0 kind of thing in a way. And I I was wondering if it did achieve that and come into the consciousness of investors like that. Um, I mean, do, would would you do you think it is possible that it beca- could become a basis of regulation? When I was doing economics, you know, way back in school, even externalities were, you know, one of those big things which people talked about, but um, you know, never thought to you know quantify really. Um, I mean, um, is, is does it poten- potentially have kind of um, quite wide, uh, you know, societal implications? I would I would think so that I would think so that in the future, as the state of those measurements improves over time, um, we might see actually more and more um, standardization and the development of specific guidelines and methodologies and even potentially disclosure regulations around what those might be. And again, I think. We the different measurements have different attributes and they have different levels of difficulty. So I wouldn't be surprised if the best application of the first application of this will be something around the environmental domain, where the, the state of the measurement is not perfect by any means, but it's certainly more advanced relative to other states of development. And uh, and as a result, you could actually do those types of calculations where where somebody would say, well, if you would apply a certain price on carbon and a certain price on nitrous oxide and several other particulate matters and so forth, um, how, how would your profit look like if you were actually doing that? Much like many companies already do when they apply some type of shadow cost yeah. right, on, uh, on the price of carbon. Uh, in order to guide some of their capital budgeting process. 
And I think it's it's a similar idea, and we see that idea that uh, is increasingly being used as as a management tool, as a governance tool, and I think it can also be used as a transparency tool for everybody to have a common view of the underlying outcomes and how how uh, material those might be in different organizations. Actually, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I suppose if we can uh, kind of circle back, because I, I, I thought another uh, another thing that I, I really wanted to talk to you about is your view on purpose. So your book's called um, Purpose and Profit. And um, one one of the things you, you, you kind of set out how, um, you know, you, you can have an ESG policy rolling out through an organisation which creates purpose, but purpose meaning a kind of innovative um, culture, which kind of actually respond is responsive and dynamic, kind of unlike um, the German car maker who said, "Yeah, well, you know, electric cars, whatever." Um, but I, I thought it was a really um, interesting argument because it, it actually be... sounds funny right now, right? <laughs> when you actually say that sentence. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, yeah, probably not. <laughs> um, but um, so, so yeah, if, if you could just explain this um, this idea that kind of actually this idea of purpose kind of is very central to all these things you've been um, researching for so long. It's a, it's a central idea in uh, in my mind, and the reason why I'm saying that is because one, I have been observing over the years more and more of my own students actually asking the question, how can I actually find meaning in my work? How can I actually contribute and have impact from a personal perspective? And then how can I match that in in a job role in an organization that is empowering me to do that? Where I have actually the agency, the aligned incentives and the clarity about how I can contribute. And that purpose is can be very idiosyncratic, right? So your purpose might be very different than mine, right? And my mm-hmm. aspirations and so forth. Like, and I always like to say that, like, it doesn't need to be uh, that we all care about, like, solving a really big problem and so forth. It might mean that, hey, you're really passionate about building um, an artificial intelligence mechanism that actually provides better information to uh, consumers when they actually go to the grocery store, whatever that might be, right? And you're saying, I would like to make that more broadly accessible, easier to use, less uh, less costly, or somebody else might be super kind of like excited about going to an entertainment and media company and producing like, you know, like shows that, you know, really delight like customers and produce happiness, right? The ephemeral happiness that we all live. Um, and, but I think what what that purpose does, which is critically important, it actually allows you to drive alignment inside the organization, a shared set of beliefs about the organization that are likely to make employees more productive and potentially more innovative if they if that increases the level of trust inside the organization. And as a result, the shared um, sharing information and collaborating. 
inside the organization. And the reason why that is important in the context of the some of the ESG-related topics and in general some of the big challenges that the world is facing, such as, for example, the Sustainable Development Goal and so forth, is because many of those strategies, business models and so forth, they are not easy to execute. They actually require very high levels of commitment from their organization. And as a result, it's much more likely that we will build many climate solutions organizations around the world if those organizations and those solutions are going to be led by purpose-driven organizations where employees are more committed to it, they work very hard, they really want to solve that problem, and as a result, they exhibit higher levels of productivity, higher levels of innovation, and so forth, because it's not easy to be done, right? So that's where, for me, this idea of purpose connects to some of the big challenges that the world is facing, that they tend to be codified in some of the dimensions of the ESG, and why those two pieces are connecting to each other. We wrote a piece for the American Economic Association several years ago around corporate purpose and climate change, where we made that point that because it's actually a hard problem to solve, you need purpose-driven organizations that are more likely to take the kinds of risk, experimentation, and introduce disruptive innovations, but also to exhibit the higher levels of productivity and innovation that are able to bring some of those solutions to the market and commercialize those solutions and make them broadly applicable. Yes, that's. It, I mean, it's. It's. A, I think. I think it's a great message. Actually, also um, last month we spoke to um, Dan Ariely, who's um, a, a behavioral psychologist. And um, what 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 your your views on purpose kind of tally so much with what he's. Um, found from the field of psychology and um, and is now working on to kind of translate into a way of understanding companies but, um yeah the human human capital is um yeah especially in in terms of the hierarchy of intangibles um really key i i, I suppose is maybe a message we can uh, <laughs> we can yes. take from it very 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 important but George, it's been an absolute um, pleasure to have you on. And thanks so much for um, sparing the time to talk. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure to connect and have this conversation. Thank you.